Good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. The saints in, uh, in and around New Jersey, really I think all the way from New York down to Maryland, send their greetings to you. I was in uh, New Jersey at the Ocean City Bible Conference last Sunday. There was a conference on missions. The aim of that conference was to amplify our reach for the sake of the gospel. Praise God. I think there was a lot of good fruit there. Our friend Brooks Buser, the missionary who's been here and speaking with us, he was there. He preached a fantastic sermon on Matthew 28. Uh, I did uh, two sessions on unity and suffering for the sake of the Great Commission and then a breakout session on the local church in the Great Commission. Yeah, please pray for fruit from that con- uh, conference. There are about 500 people there. Just pray that the Lord would perhaps even raise up just one or two missionaries out of that who uh, want to take the gospel to the nations and many, many more who will want to hold the rope even if they don't go down into the well. Okay, Let's pray for that in our prayer lives this week. Um, let me read the text. It's, it's a long one. See if you can stay with me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, and every last jot and tittle of it is sufficient for everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Amen? Amen. Let me pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll jump in. Lord Jesus, you know what your people need this morning more than I do. Uh, You love them more than I do, and you can do them good more than I can. So help me insofar as is possible in this corrupted body to just get out of the way and let your voice speak to your sheep this morning. Your sheep know your voice when they hear it, and they will follow after you. So help us to do that by your grace and for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. I have five points for you this morning, and by five I mean six. Here they are. Point number one, family. Point number two, love. Point number three, longing. Point number four, joy. Point number five, perseverance. And number six, glory. Family, love, longing, joy, perseverance, and glory. Point number one, family. I don't think that there has ever been a more severe marketing death spiral than that of Olive Garden over the last 10 years. Olive Garden's marketing slogan used to be, when you're here, you're family. Right? Isn't that kind of perfect? When you're here, you're family. Then in 2012, the company switched things up. I don't know which marketing firm they paid a couple million dollars to, to ruin that for, but they, they switched things up to, go get Olive Garden. Right? In 2013, someone realized that they had made a terrible mistake, but for image purposes, they couldn't go back to their previous slogan. What would that look like? You know, you would have to admit that you really messed up. So they went with something in the same vein, but not quite as good. We're all family here. It tries to recapture the original ethos, but it doesn't really hit the ear the same way. It doesn't really capture the emotion. So today, Olive Garden... And their advertising has basically debased itself to appealing to just the fattest parts of our human nature with ads like the never-ending pasta bowl. I mean, it might as well just be eat free breadsticks until you die. You know, I mean, it's just there's, there's not a lot tugging at our heartstrings there. It's like you like bread. We're going to give you a lot for free. They might as well just make whatever noise you make when you call for pigs out on a farm. Olive Garden's initial marketing campaign was so successful because it touched on a deeply human instinct that lives in all of us. It's, we just want to be a part of a family. And this physical reality of our embodied human existence, it's meant to point to an even deeper spiritual reality, namely that we do, in fact, belong to a family. Jesus told the Pharisees, you belong to your father, Satan. 
He says to Christians that we belong to his father, God. According to Jesus, our spiritual family is more real and more true than our physical family in every way. Right? So if you're here this morning and, and, and you're wrestling with idolatry of family, you tend to exalt love of family over the love of the Lord Jesus. Let Jesus speak to you in this example. At one point in Jesus' ministry, his mothers and his brothers came calling for him while he was teaching to a large crowd of disciples. They said, hey, Jesus, um, your mom and your brothers are here. To which Jesus replied, who are my mother's who, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now listen, praise God. If your family is also part of God's family, that's a win-win. But if your family is not a part of God's family, and you are prioritizing your physical family over your spiritual family, I think Jesus would have a word of rebuke for you this morning. You'd say you, you've kind of failed to understand the deeper and truer reality that the gospel should be causing you to see. The, the Apostle Paul understood this reality better than anyone because in his pre-conversion life, he was an Israelite through and through, which means that he identified his family like this. Whoever is a descendant of Abraham is my family, right? Oh, you're a Jew? I'm a Jew. Great. You know, see you at the cookout. But then Paul met Jesus... And he realized that not everyone descended from Abraham actually shares in the faith of Abraham, right? Not everyone actually belongs to the same spiritual family. He saw that it was possible to belong to Father Abraham, but to not belong to the Father of heaven and earth, the Lord God Yahweh. And so as Paul begins his letter to the Philippian church, he begins like this. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Right? Isn't that incredible? Our Father, right? Jew and Gentile alike, black and white, young and old, rich and poor, smart and dumb, educated and ignorant. Our Father. And then as he continues to write over and over again, he emphasizes to the saints, we're brothers and sisters. Until he gets to right here in chapter 4, verse 1. Now this verse, it, it transitions the reader from the main body of the letter to the sort of closing remarks right there at the end, and, and it's in this transition that we see Paul begin to kind of get out of professor mode, get out of teaching mode, and, and really break into effusive language of affection for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, I love you, I long for you, I rejoice in you, you are my crown, but it all begins with the language of family, right? Just look back at chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, my brothers, right? And that's brothers and sisters, right? Therefore, my brothers, the people who are part of the same family of God with me. So I just want to ask you this morning, is this how you think of your fellow church members? We'll just start there with your fellow church members. Like when you come to church on Sunday morning, what is like the main emotional impulse you feel in relation to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is the main thing you feel like, man... I get to go be with my family, you know? Or is it like, no, actually, I have my family. I'll see them in like a month when we get together for dinner. And now I'm just going to go get to be with some church people. Well, if that's how you think about the other members of the church, then I don't think you really understand what God is doing. I don't think you understand what God has done in you. He didn't save you into a, a hermetically sealed silo, right, where you just sort of exist in this in this two back and forth with you and God. No, he saved you into a relationship with himself and all of his children, right? So when you get ready to come to church on Sunday morning, even with all the distractions and frustrations and anxiety and stress that's just part of everyday life, would that it be that our primary emotional impulse towards seeing our church family is, I get to go be with the people that I love more than anything in the world, messed up as they are. I'm not talking about anyone in this room, obviously. Just the people who aren't here this morning. <laughs> Look around who's not here. Text them. Shame them. No. That's the thing, right? When they're away, it's kind of like, dang, man. <laughs> I miss them. <laughs> I wish that they were here. Right? It's a shame born of love. Right? I wish you were here, so don't ever go on vacation again. <laughs> right? 
I hope that's how we think because that's how Jesus thinks about the church. He loves us, right? And I hope that that's how Paul and the apostles think about the church. I mean, I hope that we think that way because that's how Paul and the apostles think about the church. I'm getting back in my rhythm. Give me a second. Now, it could be, and I, this is a very real possibility for some of us in the room this morning. It could be that we're trouble, we have trouble rejoicing in the church gathering because we feel like we've been wronged or underappreciated or we've been sinned against in some way that has kind of created friction in the gathering, right? Guys, you don't think the Bible knew about that? You don't think the, the Lord anticipated that, right? Bear with one another. Bear with one another. The Lord Jesus put that in the Bible because he knew that he was gathering together a bunch of sinners into the same family, and we would have to do that all the time, right? If you're saying, man, Sean, I want to feel that way about the church, but like, man, I just feel like I've experienced too much frustration and hurt and sin. I just want to say, like, what did you think this family was? What do you think any family is, right? The only relationship web that exists completely free of sin is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have been loving each other perfectly since eternity's past. Everyone else is tainted by sin, corrupted by sin. So when the family gets together, there's always going to be a drunk uncle, right? There's always going to be a weird cousin, right? There's always going to be a grumpy grandpa. Somebody's going to bring up conspiracy theories, right? Somebody's going to be late. Somebody's going to be annoyingly early. Right? There's, there's always going to be a confluence and convergence of sin and foibles that, that create frustration and friction in the church. You just have to know that walking into it. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a gathering of those who have been perfect, perfected in Christ. Right? So we're an imperfect family, but we are a family nonetheless. We are not united as a church by our unbroken affection and sinless treatment of one another. We are united by our faith in the gospel, the blood of Jesus Christ, our shared belief in the one true gospel, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters of Sixth Avenue, I pray that we would learn to not only talk to each other like beloved members of the same family, but that we would also learn to think of each other and have affection for one another as members of the same family, right? I pray that we would like talk about each other the way that Paul talks about the Philippians, like, man, they're my beloved. They're my beloved, right? Do you talk about people at work like that? Old Jim, two cubicles down from me at 3M. I love him. Can't wait to see him. He's my joy and my, my crown. Nobody can calibrate the machines like Jim can, right? Ooh, no, right? Do you talk about your neighbors like that? Maybe if you're, if you're like really blessed to have fantastic neighbors, but probably not. You probably don't even talk about your physical family like that, right? Most often, especially when I talk to Christians who come from non-Christian families, most of, and often even when they do come from Christian families, the, their thing is kind of like, yeah, I'm going to go be with my family on Christmas, Pray for me, right? I, that, that's going to be kind of brutal. I'm not really looking forward to spending 500 bucks on plane tickets to go, you know, try to avoid a fight for three days on end, right? So we don't even really use this language when we talk about our physical family, but when we talk about the church family, man, this should be the main note that we are sounding, right? Just consider the way that Paul talks to this church, right? He's not talking about these people like a general talks about his troops, or like a politician talks about his base, or like a boss talks about his employees. He's talking about the church like a family that he loves more than his own life, because he does. Even when Paul is talking to the notoriously difficult churches, like the church at Corinth, he still talks about them like a loving father. Listen to what he says. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then later, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, I I pray that the reality of what the gospel has done to make us a family and the way that God has providentially placed us here in this church together to make us a family, right? Because it didn't have to be this way. You live in the most church city in America, You could have been at 200 other churches this morning. Why are you at 6th Avenue? 
right? Why aren't you at First Baptist? Why aren't you at Point Mallard? Why aren't you at DPC? Why aren't you at First Bible? Why aren't you at some heretical church? Because God and his providence so arranged your life before the foundations of the world to bring you here. Now, you may not be here forever. I get that. Sometimes you, you say, I want to go find a different family because y'all are crazy. May the Lord bless you and keep you as you go. But if, if you're down for a little bit of crazy as we try to follow Jesus together all the way home, then the Lord has made you a part of this family. And I pray that you would uh, hold one another very dear in your hearts, even as I think you already do. Point number two, love. The family of God is constituted by several things, but primary among them is this idea of shared love. Okay, shared love. A shared love for one another, a shared love for God, and a shared love that we have received from God, right? That's what unites us together as a family. So here in point two, I simply want us to note that Paul is effusive, right? He's extravagant. He's over the top in his communication of that love. He, he says the same thing twice in one sentence, like basically in one breath. So like, look at verse one again. Paul says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That's not an over-translation of the Greek. Love is communicated twice in that one verse, okay? Have you noticed, you probably have, I've probably made you uncomfortable, that I say I love you a lot when talking to my fellow church members? I, I say it a lot. I almost never let a conversation come to a close with my fellow church members without saying those three words, I love you. I do it in person, I do it on the phone, I do it via email, it doesn't matter. I do it because I want you to know that I love you as both your pastor and your brother in Christ. And I don't want my love for you to be assumed. I want my love for you to be stated explicitly. You know, we all desire to not only be loved but to be told that we are loved, right? Words matter, right? We need to hear that. The, the cliche that you've probably heard is all too common, wherein a young man grows up and he's like, yeah, I know my dad loved me, he just never said it. And he never says that in a celebratory fashion, right? It's never like, yeah, I'm glad he never said it. You know, that was the right way. I'm glad my dad was kind of cold, right? Emotionally closed off. No, I, I was at church with one brother. When I came back from the mission field, I gave one of the older saints there a big hug. And then the next Sunday I saw him, I gave him a big hug. And he was like, that's enough hugs. And I told his son about that story, thinking like, oh, we're going to laugh about it, right? Like your dad doesn't hug. And he said, hey, man, your dad has given you, my dad has given you two more hugs than he's ever given me. Right? So, like, what, what we want is to hear our father not only act like he loves us, but to, like, look us in the eye, even awkwardly so, and say, son, daughter, I love you, right? A marriage, we know, is in real trouble when the husband and the wife can no longer communicate their love to one another with words. Why? Because a relationship is most healthy when we are most intentional to say with our mouths what we feel with our hearts, even if we're not very expressive. In the same way, a church whose members cannot clearly and like, consistently communicate their love for one another in a church, that, that church is in big trouble. So, can you guess what my application is going to be? Right? We should say, and actually mean it, I love you to our fellow church members. And there are obvious caveats here, right? Like, you don't want to be the creepy single guy who, like, as you're walking past eligible bachelorettes in the church, just walking past them in the hallway, you're just whispering, I love you, right? Like, <laughs> right, that's, we don't want that. Don't do that, right? And I understand that there may be some of us here who, who are not just very expressive in general. You're an introvert, and you, like, barely say that to your husband or wife, right? I, I get that, but you should probably press in on that a little bit. Press in on it. And I also know that it's totally possible for us to say I love you without meaning it. And that's certainly not what we want. And I think the reason why some people, men in particular, struggle to say I love you is because either A, they never had it role modeled for them, or B, they've had people say that to them and they didn't really mean it. 
I've had sisters, I've heard them say, yeah, I don't want to say I love you back because I've had so many men tell me that they love me and they didn't actually mean it. They were just trying to, you know. And so, yeah, I want to treat that word with caution. I want to guard it for, for you know, when it really matters. And to that I would say, yes, amen. And if it ever really matters, it matters in the church. So, I think the clear teaching of Scripture is that love must not only be felt, but communicated with words, right? After all, we are created in the image of God, a God who communicated his love to us with words. He could have just created all of creation, put us in creation, and said, nature speaks. Romans 1, my attributes are clearly displayed in all that I have made, and therefore you shall know in some sense that I love you. And yet God comes along and he says, no, no, no. That's not sufficient. I want to say it in a way that you can really, truly hear it. And so, for example, God describes himself to Moses, which is recorded in the Bible and kept for us so that we can hear from God in his word. God describes himself to Moses like this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Right? God not only speaks to us, but he communicates his love to us by coming down in the flesh of Jesus Christ, right? So, so from Jesus to the Apostle Paul to your loving mother, we all know that we need to not only be loved, but also to be told that we are loved. We need it from our God. We need it in our marriages. We need it from our parents. We need it from our friends. We need it from our pastors. Our children need it from us. We need it from one another in the church, So with that in mind, let me make two more application points, starting with men in the church. Men, we have got to do a better job of communicating our love to one another. And let me be clear, if you are a man in this room, and you're sitting there thinking, is Sean, like, from the pulpit, really just, like, aiming at me with this application point? Yes. Is Sean trying, no, this is not like a subtweet. If you're sitting here thinking, is Sean talking to me? And there's several of you. The answer is yes. You have got to learn to say I love you to your brothers in Christ. There is nothing effeminate about expressing your Christian love to another man. There is something effeminate, I think, in a sinful way, in your insecurity and your inability to communicate that to another man. One of the most beautiful examples of strong, godly, masculine affection is found in the story of Jonathan and David. You remember their story, of course. One was the son of a king. The other became the greatest uh, warrior king in the history of Israel. They were both not only royalty, but warriors. And here's how the Bible describes their relationship from 1 Samuel 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now you might be thinking, well, Sean, that's what the author writing about their relationship said in order to describe their relationship. He described their love for one another, but they didn't actually say that. You could not be more wrong. Here's what David has to say to Jonathan at his passing. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing even the love of women. Just go throughout the rest of the Bible. Think about the Apostle John. How was he known amongst the disciples? How was he described? The one that Jesus loved right so from Moses to David from Jesus to Paul the most masculine and godly men in the Bible were secure enough in their masculinity their God-formed masculinity to tell other men I love you right so brothers of Sixth Avenue we got to do better and doing better does not mean looking to red pill internet personalities to understand what it looks like to be a man okay They offer some helpful correctives against a culture gone crazy, but that is not the main place you should be looking to figure out what it looks like to be a man. Look to the Bible where you will find Jesus, the perfect man who was both a lion and a lamb. He was a warrior 
and a servant, right? He was able to execute wrath and also be very tender and gentle, right? He was able to pronounce judgment on a city and also to look out over Jerusalem and, and to weep and to say, I'm like a mother hen who just desires to gather all my little baby chickadees under my wings. My translation, right? He was able to say, I love you without any hesitation or qualification whatsoever. Before moving on, I want to be clear that this exhortation and perhaps even rebuke does not only apply to men in the church. If any of us are unable to express our love to our family members, I just want to ask you a question. Why do you think that is? If someone says, I love you, and you're not able to say, I love you back, or if you really feel strongly for another individual in the church, like a good godly affection, but you cannot bring yourselves to do what Paul does here, to do what Jesus does, to do what God does, if you can't bring yourself to say, I love you, just, I can't figure out your heart, you know, like God can do that, I'm going to try as a pastor, but I need you to examine your own heart seriously and ask yourself, like, why can't I say that? And, and is it healthy that I can't say that? Probably not. The next point of application has to do with leaders in the church. So if you are an elder or a deacon or an aspiring leader of any kind in really any church, you should be able to talk to your flock like a loving shepherd, like Paul talks to the Philippians, right? You should be able to say to church members, I love you, my beloved, right? And you should be able to mean it when you say it because there is nothing worse than someone who is merely contriving their affections, right? And we can smell it a mile away when someone is being insincere in their communication of love to us. It's actually way worse. It would be better if you didn't say anything at all than say something and not actually mean it, okay? And by the way, as long as I'm in this church, uh, and I, I think this is true of the other elders as well, we are never going to appoint someone to a position of leadership if their love for this local body is not like really, really obvious, I don't care how gifted they are or how, you know, any of that, right? If you don't love this local church, you're just not going to be a leader here because everything else is, well, what does Paul say? Clanging cymbals, right? It's just, it's, it's worthless. It's noise. I recently came across a letter circulating on social media written by a former PCUSA pastor who made the decision to leave pastoral ministry, which he's certainly free to do. But this, this letter was intended to serve as an explanation to, I guess, all of his adoring fans. I don't know. Uh, uh, serve as an explanation for his departure. And I found this letter to be both tragic and telling because the pastor does not talk about his congregation like Paul talks about the Philippians. Right, like a dad talking about his children, right? He talks about his the church like it's a commodity, right? He he talks about it like he's a boss and they are his employees, like he is trying to manage customers rather than lead sheep. And as I read the letter, I just thought, man, his lack of love for the church is just so obvious throughout. At one point in his letter, talking about why he left the church, the former pastor says this. Is leading the church really worth the investment if this is what I'm going to get in return? Friends, this is not how a shepherd of God talks about the ministry ever. Ever. This is pride and selfishness and arrogance. It is not Christ-like self-giving love. And listen, I get it. As a pastor, I know ministry is hard. I had a particularly difficult week this week. The Bible, on top of that, is full of stories where God's leaders are attacked and persecuted, not by people outside of the church, but by people inside of the church, by God's people, right? Stiff-necked, hard-hearted people, but true gospel leaders never give up. They may, there, there are certainly good reasons why a pastor may choose to leave the ministry, but they don't leave the ministry because they're tired of their people. Moses stayed with stiff-necked Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. He could have abandoned them on any given occasion, right? The Lord was like, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses could have been like, great, because <laughs> this is brutal. You know, do your thing. They're crazy. I got to go. Promised land, here I come, right? No, he didn't do that. What did he do? He said, I love them so much. Please don't kill them. They're driving me crazy, but please don't do that. 
protect your people in the glory of your name. Right? The Apostle Paul didn't write to the Corinthians and say, you know, <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, you can have the super apostles. Your church isn't really worth what I'm going to get in return for my time with you anyways. Right? He didn't go, well, you know, I am something of an apostle. I got the Ephesians. They're doing great. I got the Thessalonians. Their love for me is like, like everyone knows about it. Right? I got the Philippians. I got the church in Antioch, my home church. I don't need to deal with this from you. He didn't do that. No. He said, I love you, and we're going we're gonna to fix this together even if it kills me. Right? If you aspire to leadership in the church, this is what you are aspiring to. Now to the members of our church, here is your application. Love your leaders well. Right? Love them well. Listen to how Paul says it to the Thessalonians. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, right? I think uh, Emily Butcher is a great example of this from the second she got to our church. She just was like always wanted to show honor and deference to her pastors. I think she sets a good example for the church in that. I'm not saying that we all don't do that well, but I think Emily excels in that grace. Now that, that last line there in 1 Thessalonians is really important. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Because of their work. You should show them love because they're, they're serving you well. Their work is to love you. Their work is to serve you, right? And, and it, it's not like office hours, you know, nine to five. Like when I go home, I don't just like leave all of my pastoral issues in my office. Like it's a night and day leading and loving. And it's true for all the elders, right? Like we are working for you in love. Now, if you don't feel like that's true, you should find another church where you can say that that's true, right? So Paul says that you, you need to love your leaders well and that, and that there should be some sense in which your love for your leaders is demonstrable, right? It should be objectively, like you should be able to evaluate it. Let me, let me read 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, Excuse me, I, I got that backwards. It's not your love for them that should be objectively uh, interpreted. It's their loving you and leading you well. Back at it. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you, right, for your sake. So this is the way that you should be able to speak of your elders, right? You should be able to say they have proven themselves among us in the way that they lead us and they love us. And by the way, uh, if you haven't told your elders recently that like, hey, thank you for actually doing that, do it this week. Ah, but Sean, you told us to. It won't really seem sincere and genuine. All right, wait a couple weeks, right? But just be intentional in like encouraging your elders for loving you so well. I know that I was uh, pretty critical of that pastor from earlier, and I don't take any of it back. But there is a part of his story that you should consider. He was probably not loved very well by his church, which made his departure that much easier. Okay? We should be critical of selfish and self-centered leaders who quit their ministry posts for the wrong reasons before they should. But we should also be aware of the many scriptural examples of stiff-necked congregations. From the Israelites attacking Moses in the wilderness for decades on end to Jesus being constantly abandoned, betray, abandoned and betrayed by his followers to the Corinthians and their pattern of grieving Paul and his ministry, the story of God's people failing to love their leaders well is a very real one. So be careful. Examine yourselves. Guard your hearts. I, I think I can speak for all of our elders when we say that we don't think our church is in any danger of that. We love you. We feel well-loved, well-cared for, uh, but it's not guaranteed to continue on, right? Any kind of health in a relationship requires consistency. So my prayer for our congregation from 1 Thessalonians 3.12 is that the Lord would make us increase and abound in love for one another, elders and members alike. Point number three, longing. In this morning's text, Paul says that he not only loves the Philippians, but look in chapter 4, verse 1 again. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, right? He says that he longs for them. Now, what does that word long mean? 
It means that there's a, a pain due to separation. Okay, so for example, in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says this. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, and this, I like that he says this. He says, for a short time, right? It's not, like, it's not like they've been gone forever. Even for a short time, I feel like I've been torn away from you. Then he says, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. That is the language of longing, right? Your wife is out of town. You miss her a whole bunch longing, right? Mom and dad are in another country. You've moved here. You haven't seen them in several years. You, you're saving up to go back and visit them. Longing, right? Uh, heaven is like right around the corner. Life is really hard, but God's there. He's waiting to receive you and to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my master. And you're just chomping at the bit to hear that from him every day until he calls you home. Longing, right? I love that Paul says in this verse that our hearts are still bound together, right? That's what creates the longing, right? It's that spiritually we are bound up with one another, even though physically we are separated from one another. So therefore, we're going to try to get back together face to face, right? And think about this in light of the fairly recent development of video chat technologies, right, that we have available today. We got FaceTime, we got Zoom, whatever Android uses, right? These technologies, they allow us to not only hear each other, but to see each other's faces, which makes us feel, in some sense, closer to one another. It makes us feel like we're not quite as far away from each other as we actually are, which goes to show, by the way, the importance of seeing the human face when you interact with other human beings. And in spite of how great these technologies are, they also reveal to us the fact that they're utterly inadequate, right? Like, at the end of the day, a husband who's separated from his wife and gets to FaceTime with her does not go, this is good enough, right? Like, I don't need to snuggle tonight, right? I got to see your face, same, same. No, right? When, 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 when I'm traveling and, and Amber calls with the girls and she's like, okay, let's sing, our girls go, oh, I don't want to, that's weird, we're on the phone, Right? Why? There's just something about being together in the same place that's, our hearts are bound together, but, but we're not actually face-to-face, even if we can see each other's faces, right? A screen is not enough. A screen is not enough. A screen is not enough. If you've tuned out, tune back in. A screen is not enough. If you're thinking about joining a church in the future because God providentially moves you and the pastor is at some other campus, and he preaches and you only see him on a screen, a screen is not enough. If another round of COVID hits and, and for whatever reason we get locked down again, I doubt we'll be locked down, but if we get locked down again and you say, I'll, I'll just watch from home, a screen is not enough. It's not enough. It's the reason why during the lockdowns we didn't do that. It's not the same thing. And I don't want you to think that it's the same thing. What I want to happen inside of you is for there to be a buildup of longing. I want you to hunger to be back with the saints so that the second the door opens, you're right back with us again, right? A screen is not enough. I hope you feel this way about your brothers and sisters when you're separated from them, right? This is how God felt about us when we were separated from him in our sin, right? His heart, his heart was bound up with our heart, And our sin is what separated us from his face. He had to put us out from his holy gaze so that it wouldn't destroy us. But his heart was to bring us back home because he longed for us. He loves us. And if God the Father longs for us in our sin, how much more should we as sanctified sinners, right? Redeemed sinners who are members of the same household of God, members of the same family. How much more should we long to be with one another? Guys, I got to tell you, the happiest day of the week for me is Sunday. I don't just say that because I'm your pastor. I mean it. Like, I genuinely, like, throughout the week, I'm like, God, man, I just can't wait for Sunday. All my friends are going to be here, you know, all my family members. And, you know, I pastor a lot of people. I, I don't get to see everyone for a very long time, but it's still, man, it's like, I, man, six days. That's a long time, right? So, you know, come to Wednesday night Bible study, right? Long to be with each other. Point number four, joy. 
In this morning's text, Paul tells the Philippians that they are his joy. He says, I long for you and you are my joy and my crown. I find this amazing. (laughs) You know, I've had relationships before where I knew that someone loved me, but I was pretty sure they didn't enjoy me. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you're around someone and you're sure that they're committed to your good, but you're not sure that they actually like you. And listen, that's, that's just part of the way life works. You probably have relationships like that with people in this church. Listen, let's just, we have 92 members. Let's just round it up to 100. 100 people together. The odds that all of us enjoy one another equally, probably never going to happen, right? Sin is just too much of a reality. That's just part of our life, right? But that is not the ideal that God has created us for, right? Like, when we get to heaven, God... The Lord isn't going to like be like, oh, glad you're here. You know, glad you made it, you know. TV's over there, turkey's over there, just hang out and make yourself comfortable, right? No. It's going to be like, you made it. Oh, man, I was, I'm so glad. Like the, the prodigal son, right? When the father saw the prodigal returning home, he wasn't like, okay. Grace, Grace says I have to receive him back in. Man, this is going to be tough. Okay, let's pray for strength. No, he sees him at a distance, and he sprints, right? He was rejoicing in his son, right? That's how God is going to be thinking of us. This is how Paul thinks, well, I said, that is how God thinks of us, and that was how Paul thought of the saints at Philippi and all of his churches saved by the blood of Christ, right? Now listen, in the life of this church, we will all have seasons and moments of frustration with one another. See what I said back in point one? The Bible tells us to bear with one another. But a happy and healthy gospel church should be the kind of place where church members enjoy one another, right? And you know what I'm talking about. One of the things that visitors always tell me, I can usually count on two things visitors telling me. Uh, Well, actually three things, but I'll combine the first two. They'll usually complain something about our music and how long we pray. I'm like, ah, you'll, you'll build those muscles up and one day you'll come to love it, right? And then they'll say, Everyone here just seems like they love each other so much. Like Luke, who often has responsibilities on a Sunday afternoon after everyone's done here, right? Like he's like, okay, so when do I kick people out? Like when can I officially start shoving people out the door? Because everyone just wants to stick around and talk with each other and love each other. There was a couple who was visiting our church six months, six weeks ago. I knew they weren't going to last. I knew they weren't. You know how I knew? Because every Sunday, boom, they're out the door. I was like, yeah, this probably isn't the church for you, right? This is a hang out and linger with your church family kind of church. Not a, ooh, I don't hope nobody talks to me kind of church. I get it. Some of us struggle with social anxiety, but, uh, and there's grace for that. But if you don't love being around other Christians, you're going to struggle in any local church, not just ours, okay? Point number five, Perseverance. It's here in point five that we should get to the exhortation of verse one, right? Paul says, I love you, my brothers, you're my joy, you're my crown. Then he says, stand firm, thus in the Lord. Now this exhortation comes with a therefore. It's right there at the beginning of the verse, right? Therefore. You know what the therefore is there for, right? Right? It's there to point back to something that came before it. right? And, and what Paul is pointing back to is, is 17 through 21. When he says, I love you, you're my joy, you're my crown, you're my family members, stand firm. He says, therefore, and then he's pointing back to something before it. What is he pointing back to? Particularly, he's talking about enemies of the cross. They're headed for destruction. right? He says, don't listen to them. Don't, don't join in them. Uh, Don't join in with them. If you do, you will be destroyed, right? But then in verse 21 of chapter 3, if this is true, and it is, he he says something more positive. He says, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will be transformed on the last day, right? The Lord Jesus, by his power, will transform your lowly body on the last day. Therefore, stand firm. He's going to transform you by his power, therefore, stand firm. 
I just love the way that, that, that like the Bible speaks to us, right? We've talked a little bit in the past about indicatives and imperatives, but let's just, let's just do a little refresher on that. Anytime it comes up, I think it's good to remind ourselves. Remember, a gospel imperative is a command. Imperative is just a fancy word for a command. It's, it's do this or don't do that. An indicative is the why behind the command, right? So Paul says, put sin to death. That's the imperative. And then he gives the indicative. Because you have been crucified with Christ, right? That's the why you put sin to death, okay? That's how that works. Now, what I want you to remember is that whenever we're being counseled in Scripture, like the vast majority of the time, it's, it's, it's explicitly stated, sometimes not, even then it's implicit. A gospel imperative always flows from a gospel indicative, right? So in this morning's text, stand firm. That's the command, stand firm, right? The indicative is because Christ by his power will transform your lowly body, right? Basically, stand firm because your victory is guaranteed, right? That's how you can stand firm. You're like, man, how can I make it? Well, it's not really about you, you making it. It's about Christ who's already accomplished the victory on your behalf. Now, you just have to stand in that. I just think it's worth stopping here just to praise God for a moment for the way that his word ministers to our hearts and empowers us to obedience and faithful Christian living. I th- when I contrast like my parenting, for example, with like the way that God leads, I'm like, man, I got to close the gap there. I got to tighten up. I got to do better because he's always talking to us the right way. He's always accessing our heart. He's always giving us the best possible motivations. God never beats us up. He never manipulates us. He never shames us into doing the right thing. He always says to the Christian, because the gospel is true, because you have received grace, X, Y, Z. And I praise God for that kind of exhortation because it's the only kind that really works for the Christians. You might be able to manipulate someone into behavior modification. You might be able to shame or guilt them into changing some of their actions so that they can be more respectable, right? You might be able to discipline your kids to get them to do whatever it is you want them to do or not do whatever you want them to do. But the only thing that ever really affects us at the heart level that produces long-lasting change is this kind of counsel where, where, where the Lord points us back to the gospel, the one bedrock thing that we know to be true, good and beautiful, the one thing that we want to obey more than anything in life. And he says, if that's true, then, and then he inserts the command. Praise God for this kind of loving, wise father. Just think about this command to stand firm if that were not the case. Stand firm in your own power, right? There are churches that preach this gospel. You can find them in Decatur, right? Luke went to a a Roman Catholic wedding last night. That's the gospel they preach. You have to stand firm, and you have to do it in your own power. They they would say, no, 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 it's by grace. And I would push back, and I would say, is it by grace alone? And they'd say, no, not grace alone. Okay, so it has to be in some sense in my power, right? That is a terrible burden that no one can bear. Jesus says, do not yoke yourselves once again to the slavery of that kind of thinking about a relationship to God. Now consider that in contrast to the way that Paul talks in this morning's text. Stand firm because of the power of Christ on your behalf. It's incredible. That is a yoke. Of grace. That's a yoke that we can carry. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon yourself because it is. Yes. So, therefore, brothers and sisters, here's your application in this point stand firm. Right? When you see the culture all around you secularizing at an unprecedented pace, stand firm. When you see friends and family members deconstructing, which is just a postmodern way of saying abandon the faith, stand firm. When doubt begins to wage war in your heart, affecting your communion with Jesus, stand firm. When the world, the flesh, and the devil conspire against you and cause your faith to begin to falter, stand firm. Not in your own strength. You can't do it. Stand firm in the strength of Christ. You can do that. You are not standing in your own power. If Jesus can subject all things to himself as Lord, then his power to keep you standing... It's a guarantee. Finally, in point six, we consider the theme of glory. 
Paul says that the Philippians are not just his joy, but also his glory. He says it using the language of a crown. Therefore, my, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Now, when you hear the word crown, you probably think of a monarchy. You probably think of a king or a queen or a, a prince or a princess. But the imagery that Paul is employing here is the imagery of a wreath, right? The wreath is something that you get at the end of an athletic endeavor. So, for example, if you were to go to the Olympics today and compete in the shot put and win, you would get a gold medal, right? That's your prize. But in the ancient world, if you were to like run a race, for example, or wrestle and you would win that competition, they would give you a wreath. That would be your gold medal. Paul says it like this elsewhere. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So Paul talks about our prize of standing firm all the way to the end as a crown, a wreath. We're going to come back to this verse in a minute. But for now, I just want you to see that this crown is a reward that we get for running the race all the way to the end. Now, in this morning's text, Paul says something weird. He says, you are my crown. The Philippian church. How is it that the Philippian Christians are the crown of Paul? Uh, Well, simply put, the, the Philippians are the evidence that Christ has been working in Paul and his ministry. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4 real quick if you still have your Bible open. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Basically, I have stood firm. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown, right? That's his prize of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Okay, now turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown, the reward, the prize of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In both of these verses, the prize of the crown, which Paul is going to receive on the last day, he receives because he has loved the Lord. Everyone who loves the Lord gets the crown. Which leads us to the question, how do we know that he loved the Lord, right? And for Paul, as he's writing to the Philippians, what he's doing is he's telling them, you are my evidence that I love Jesus, right? My love for Jesus is obvious in the way that I have loved you. Therefore, you are my crown. So I just want to ask you, brothers and sisters, do you think that that will be true of you on the last day? I mean, if you're in Christ, yes, you will have the crown, right? But I'm just asking you right now, as as you're moving towards the last day, are you loving the saints so much that on the last day, God will hold up the way that you loved and served and treated your fellow church members as evidence for your love of him, right? If you are merely tolerating your fellow church members, that's, that's not what we're talking about, right? Paul is giving his whole life to the church. His love for Christ cannot be seen apart from his love for the church. Do you understand that? If you say that you love God, but you do not love the saints, you, do know, you, you have no idea what it means to love God. God loves the saints. It would be like if you said you love me, but you really don't like spending time with my wife, right? Like, I'll hang out with you. I'll even come over. But just ask her really to kind of steer clear of me, you know, or I'll engage with her. But you have to know I'm not really going to be into it. Like I just Amber just kind of drives me crazy, man. I just be like, oh, okay. well, you don't really know what it means to love me then, because my wife is the best part of me. We are one. 
right? If you say that you love the Lord Jesus, but you don't love his people, you just have misunderstood fundamentally what it means to love, right? If you say, well, I do love them. I feel feelings of affection towards them. Yeah, that's not really what I'm talking about. Your feelings of affection are not the same thing as love, right? If you cheat on your wife, and then you go to her and you say, I'm so sorry, I love you, right? She'll say, you know, I'm having a hard time believing it because you're not showing me, right? It's not enough for you to merely say I love the church. Your love will be seen in the way that you interact with the church, the way that you serve the church, the way that you sacrifice for the church. And I'm not just saying this because I'm your pastor, right? Like, this, is, this was true on the mission field. This was true when I was just a member of other churches. This is just true. If you are struggling to love the church, to forgive people in the church, but you want to love them, that's a good start, right? Sometimes our affections are so messed up because of sin, we just need to want to want the right thing, and that's like the first step, right? You remember the story of the man who said, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief? If that's where you are right now, Okay, we can work with that. The next step is for you to pray and to go to God and to say, Lord, help me to see your children the way that you see them. Help me to love them the way that you love them. Help me, help me, help me. Sometimes that's all you can say. That's okay. He knows. His spirit is in you. He's translating that broken prayer into something that actually makes sense to him. And if you say, God, I want to love the church more, and you're sincere in that request, he will answer that prayer. I guarantee you. In closing, I do want to draw your attention specifically to Christ one more time. I want us to remember that the only reason that any of us have any hope of receiving the crown of glory is because our Master and Lord first loved us, right? And, and, and He loved us when we were not lovable. He loved us when we were unworthy, when we were acting like His enemies, because we were His enemies, Right? He loved us, and in order to love us, he had to give up his crown of glory, and he had to take on a crown of thorns. On the cross, Jesus traded his eternal glory for our brokenness and shame. His body was destroyed so that our bodies might be resurrected in glory. On the cross, Jesus longed for the fellowship of the Father so that we might be called sons, of daughters, sons and daughters of God and be with him forever. On the cross, Jesus was stripped of every ounce of joy so that we could enter into the joy of our master he was crushed and brought low so that we could rise and stand firm right he was separated from love itself so that we might know the love of God and the love of his children Jesus had to perish so that we could receive the imperishable crown of glory so as we close I just want you to know brothers and sisters that Jesus loves you he loves you as his beloved brothers and sisters, as his children, as his family members. He loves you. As much as Paul loves the Philippians, Jesus loved the Philippians more. As much as I and the other elders love you, Jesus loves you more. Children, listen to me. As much as your parents love you, you have got to know that Jesus loves you more. Like, a lot more. And parents, you have to know that as much as you love your children... Jesus loves your children more. He loves you, and you are his glory. He longs for you. You may be separated from him physically, but not in heart. He has purchased you with his own blood, which is the guarantee that that longing will not last forever. If you're tired, if you're just like, man, I've been on this Exodus journey for a long time. I'm ready to be done with the wilderness. I long for you, Lord. I want you to know that on the last day, when you're standing before his face, all of this will seem as if it was nothing. He has purchased you with his blood. He has given you his spirit as the guarantee that you will be reunited with him one day and see him face to face. He is bringing you home to himself. And for those of you this morning who may not know Jesus, I want you to know that he loves you too. And I want you to know that he longs for you, but his longing is very different. He longs for you like a heartbroken father who desperately wants his wayward child to come home again, right? He wants you back, but he is not going to just let you come and bring your sin with you. 
your love for sin, your commitment to sin, your worship of sin. His love for you is a, is a love that says, I want the best for you, so I'm, I'm beckoning you to come home to me, but you have to leave your sin at the doorstep. And even my grace will help you with that, if only you will trust in me. So I pray that you will call on the name of Jesus today so you can be with him forever. Let's pray. Father God, your word has served us so well this morning. We are fed, we are cared for, we are strengthened as we go back out into a lost and dying world. Lord, allow us with great confidence as members of your family to go out and represent our family name well and to call many more sons and daughters into this family by your power and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing.